Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast. All right, so today we're going to go back to November of 2014 in Iraq to a displacement camp that is housing thousands of displaced Muslims and Yazidis from a Kurdish city by the name of Erbil. While we're going over this story, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the people of this story. Because oftentimes, from here in the United States, we look at things through a different lens because we have a government that is functioning. We have systems institutions in place to help us. So that if somebody was threatening us, if somebody was threatening to attack our family, we have somebody to go to. We could go to the police. We have the federal government that is keeping overwatch over a lot of these things. But in Iraq in 2014, that did not exist. Back in 2003, during the war, when we took out Saddam Hussein, the government was completely destroyed. Everybody that was working inside the government of Iraq was completely taken out. They lost their positions. And so Iraq had to start from the bottom up. With the help of the United States and other countries between the times of 2003 up until really around when Obama pulled the troops out of Iraq. What happened was it created a vacuum, a power vacuum. And when you have a power vacuum, you don't have the people who have the best interest of the country come in and take power. You don't have the best and the brightest come in and take power. You have the most ruthless, the ones who will do anything and everything to gain that power. And they are the most ruthless, the most brutal. And that is what happened when ISIS began to take power. Now, I seriously want you to put yourself in the shoes of the Iraqi people back at that time. As you go through the story, I want you to ask yourself certain questions. And when we get to that, I'll ask them for you to think about. So we're going to start off 2014. Displacement camp outside of Ibril, Iraq. Thousands of displaced Iraqis from the city of Mosul. So let's get into it. Let's flip the script. A row of young boys sat along an old metal pipe, excitedly singing Arabic songs. The girls whizzed each other around in wheelbarrows and played with their dolls on patches of earth that hardened from mud to crusty dirt. One frail father said absently, as if he was staring right through me. Soon, they will know. Crevices of stress had been delicately carved into his tanned face, as if slowly going mad. I did not know what happened to him and his family, but did not feel right to ask. So this is written by journalist Holly McKay, who was really at the front line of the entire battle against ISIS in Iraq. Uh, if you don't know anything about Haya Minkay, look her up. She's got a very fascinating story of how she got into journalism 
and how she ended up getting into Iraq and following the whole ISIS war. Most recently, she was on the ground in Afghanistan uh, during the whole pullout withdrawal disaster. And she covered that extensively. And she's currently writing about that. You can catch her articles online. Just look her up. This is her memoirs and a book titled Only Cry for the Living. This is her documentation of what she observed and what she saw in the interviews that she took in her time in Iraq covering the war against ISIS. So here we are at this displacement camp, and she's talking to a, uh, a father. And the kids are running around, and he says that it's still like a playpen to them, like it's a big party. They're oblivious to the horrors of what's going on, and he says, soon they will know. And she said that he was very stressed. He's got these wrinkles. He's stressed out. She doesn't know what happened to his family and she didn't want to ask. So she's here with one of her friends who was a military veteran by the name of uh, Miley. She was in the army and she's also with a guy by the name of Muhammad, who was uh, 23 years old and he was a student in Baghdad. And he started a campus mission, which was titled the I Was Here Movement, which was inspired by uh, Beyonce when she did a show for the United Nations. And she had sang lyrics, which read, when I leave this world, I'll leave no regrets. Leave something to remember so they won't forget. And she had sang that the United Nations General Assembly in New York City two years earlier. So that was in 2012. This young student, Muhammad, his organization, they wanted to rehabilitate archaeological sites. And they're also raising money uh, for disabled students, right? All right, so we're going to continue. She says, but since then, new tragedy has been lumped into the pile. At the camp, the sight of fresh faces brought with a renewed belief that someone was coming to save them from ISIS, to tell them that everything was okay, to ensure that their situation was not forgotten, with a hope that it would be all fixed soon. The first boy to introduce himself to me was a nine-year-old named Abdullah. He struck me with his light eyes and gap-toothed smile and his spattered freckles across his nose. There was a gentleness in his demeanor. I wondered how such gentleness could come from a child who had been ripped from his home by war. Abdul told us that he was a Muslim from Sinjar, or Sengal, as they say in Kurdish. He had been forced to flee two months earlier when ISIS invaded his village. He insisted on showing us around the camp. He explained the different people who lived there and where they were from. He explained how they had all been confronted with the same vicious enemy and how they coped in different ways. Some ISIS we knew, Abdullah said, and some of our neighbors became ISIS too. So I want you to think about this. He says that some ISIS we knew, and some of our neighbors became ISIS too. So put yourself in this situation. You have no local government. You have no federal government. And what's there is completely corrupt. And you have this organization come in, a terror organization come in, 
and they take power over your city. You don't agree with them, but they're the ones in charge. You knew some of these people. You went to the market, you saw them. Your kids went to school together. And they were even your neighbors. So he says, even some of our neighbors became ISIS. Now, here in the, here in the West, we often have a jaded view of this situation. And we can't understand how anybody could join ISIS. And we think that if anybody who joins ISIS gets what they deserve, rightfully so, if you commit acts of atrocities and terror, then yes, you get what you deserve. But some people join ISIS not because they agree with that ideology, but out of survival for their own family. As a father, as a mother, for those of us who have children and have families, we know that our number one priority is to provide and to take care of our families. And when you're faced with a situation where, I'm going to put this in perspective, I'm going to present this scenario to you, and I want you to seriously consider what your options would be and what decisions you would make in this situation. So let's say you're living in Boston. The federal government is in shambles. The police force is dismantled. You have nobody to call when you need help. You get a knock at your door and it's somebody from a local terror organization. And he says to you, listen, we need you to strap on this suicide vest and we need you to go blow up our enemies. If you do so, your wife will become the wife of a martyr and your children will live for the rest of their lives as children of a martyr. And they will be taken care of financially for the rest of their life. And you will have nothing to worry about because they will be taken care of. We will make sure that they are taken care of if you carry out this duty for us. However, on the other hand, if you don't do this for us, we're going to rape your wife in front of you. Your children will be tortured in front of you. And the last thing that you see will be your wife and your children being raped and tortured. And it won't stop with their death. We will continue to use them as sex slaves and torture them for the rest of their days to where they curse your grave because of the decision that you made to allow them to be tortured for the rest of their life. Now that's the situation that you're presented with. Put yourself in that situation. What are your options? Your options are to carry it out, to do what they say. Ensure that your children and your wife will be taken care of. Their other option is to resist and not go along with it and see if these guys are bluffing. Now, if you know about the reputation, like an organization of ISIS, they do not bluff. They carry out their threats. There's one third option, if it's even feasible, is to pack your family up and leave. If you can. If they don't have somebody watching you. If they give you time to think about the decision, you may have time to pack up and flee and hope that they don't catch up with you. Now, we all want to say that we would make the moral right decision to not carry this out and try to flee, try to fight back. But we really have to ask ourselves, would we? I don't have an answer to that. What I do know, in the inception of our own country, the Revolutionary War, only 3% of the colonists took up arms to fight the British. And only 10% funded them by donating weapons, clothing, food, and money. The other 90% did absolutely nothing for the effort to become independent from the king. They were completely content with being under rule of the British. And they probably even took the sides of the British. 
and they fought against their own countrymen who were trying to bring them in independence. So only the 3% who actually fought ended up becoming victorious and changed the world. And then those who decided not to do anything, their children's children's children reaped the benefits of what the 3% were willing to lay down and sacrifice for the other 90% who were not. And their ancestors reaped the benefits of something that they took no part of. And that's the, that's the truth. So as we all think that we want to be noble and we would do the right thing, history tells us that 90% of us would not. So that's something to think about. That's something to put in perspective. In no way am I making excuses for those who join ISIS. I'm just saying that there's two sides to every story. Sometimes it's not even a coin. Sometimes it's a dice and sometimes there's six sides to every story. We usually only view it from one. But to truly understand the situation, we have to try to look at it from multiple sides. And that's one side. So let's continue with the story. Let's continue. Let's flip the script. So as Abdullah says that somewhere we knew some of the ISIS and some of our neighbors became ISIS, Holly continues to say, I did not know then that such a phrase would be repeated time and time again as the years went on. I did not realize then the importance of that phrase, the clefts and all the conspiracies that would come from it. And that one phrase would come to represent the shores of a country that I wasn't sure could ever put back together. Our neighbors became ISIS too. ISIS took over beginning in June of 2014. Iraqi army soldiers had abandoned their weapons and ran. International condemnation and frustration. While President Obama had initially described the ISIS as the JV team, it was evident that as much as we all wanted to disregard the group as a bunch of thug wannabes, their potency could not be denied. Now in the heart of autumn, Abdullah boldly led the pack of young children. Weaving through the tents, he commanded a certain respect from the young ones. And when he smiled, they smiled. And when they laughed, they laughed. Abdullah had a kind of infectious energy that gave me a glimmer of hope for them and their future. The afternoon passed and Abdullah and his camp friends still seemed to be such happy beings, oblivious to the darkness that reigned not so far away. The innocence was, in many ways, tragic. A day would come when they would grow up and realize the unfairness and all the things that terror had robbed them. Far beyond material things like clothes and possessions, they could no longer roam freely in the streets. They could no longer wrap themselves in the arms of a mother who was not stained by her trauma. They could no longer wander down the village road to seek an education. Education is not viewed as a life and death matter when such conflicts arise. But often it gets lost altogether. What is war? War is children being sent off to work or made to stay home and fend for the family. Even when the likes of the United Nations set up temporary schools, when a child loses everything, all they have left is their still open minds. Education was a 
pertinent to their immediate survival as it was to their future. Yet, who was to tell these people suffering from war what should be done? There were no happy endings or alternatives. The future was a fantasy, and living day by day was all that mattered. I asked one young mother the permission to take a photograph with her and her children, and she nodded shyly in agreement, only for a man to charge over in anger and demand that I delete the photograph, insisting that I prove it had disappeared from my phone. The woman did not know the man, but her eyes fell to the ground in subservience. He was not her husband, nor a distant relative, but his word stood for more than hers. And that photo had to be wiped. And that's where we're going to end from this story. The story of Abdullah and the, the father who was feeling so stressed for his children that they did, did not really understand what was going on and his stress that one day they would realize what was going on and how that type of trauma of growing up and uh, being displaced from your, everything that you knew up until that point being ripped away from you and hoping that somebody would come and save you. But in that moment, nobody's coming. I sometimes wonder why Holly wrote the title of her book as Only Cry for the Living. And as I think about that, the only logical explanation for why she chose that title, because the dead don't suffer, but the living suffer. The living who are left suffering in war cry for them. When a father is faced with a situation to either join ISIS or be killed and have his family killed, his thought is, what about my family after I'm killed? Do what you want to me, but what are you going to do to my children or my wife? Sometimes that's enough for a person to agree to commit atrocities, to commit acts of horror that a human being can't even comprehend. As we like to think that we would never participate in that, and we would take the moral high ground, and we would fight against it, there's no way that we would do it. When you're faced with a situation where it's your wife and your family and your children over yourself or over your own morals and everything that you believe in and everything that you stand for, you have to make that decision. Like I said, history tells us that 90% of us would not do what we think we would do. And that's where we're going to end here. This is Flip the Script Podcast. Make sure you hit that like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the share button. Write a review on the podcast platform wherever you're listening to this at. Hit me up in the comments. And we will be covering more stories out of Only Cry for the Living in the future. I have a bunch of books and a bunch of things to cover. So if you're enjoying this, subscribe to the channel. Make sure you put me as your favorites. Put the notifications. And I'll see you next time on Flip the Script Podcast. Flip the Script out.